Well, last week, Cody finished up his time at Southside by finishing up a series on Habakkuk and served us well. And as he said, every week, one of the main important verses there was chapter 2, verse 4, that the righteous shall live by faith. Faith is so important. We talk about we're saved by faith. Well, if faith is the instrument by which we're saved, we had better get it right. We need to have a right understanding of what biblical faith is. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning before we jump back into Matthew next week. One of my favorite ways of describing faith that encompasses, I think, a good bit of biblical teaching is just the acronym F-A-I-T-H. Kids, you can remember this, faith, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I take him. Forsaking all, I take him, of course, referring to Jesus. But first, what faith is not? Faith is not what you think. Faith is more than you think. Faith is more than just what we intellectually believe. I worry that sometimes we think that's enough. It's just mental agreement to the facts. But faith is so much more than head knowledge. Faith is so much more than mental agreement. In fact, maybe you remember from James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe, you have faith, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Even the demons believe and tremble in terror. So friends, we got to know that the demons have really good theology, probably better than most of us. They have the head knowledge part down. Even the demons believe. Intellectually, they know more than we do. And so faith is more than what you think. Faith is more than mere knowledge. That's demon faith. It's not just head knowledge, and it's also not just some past experience in our life. Turn over to Matthew 7. We've been here a lot lately just because it is the most important sermon in the world, the Sermon on the Mount. These verses I go to a lot because the Lord used these verses to shake me up, and my prayer is that if there's anyone here that needs to be shaken up, God would do that by his word. Jesus is concluding his sermon here on the Sermon on the Mount, and Obviously, as we begin things and end things, what we have to say is very important. And so these words are some of the most important words ever spoken in the history of mankind. It's the conclusion to the most important sermon. And what does he say there at the end in 721, Matthew 7, verse 21? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, speaking of judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here we're taught the reality of a false faith. A false conversion. They knew the Lord, right? They knew of the Lord. They, they said they knew his name, Lord, Lord. They had even done some stuff in church, even some supernatural type stuff. But at the end of the day, the Lord says, I never knew you. Go, depart from me. You had head knowledge faith, but you didn't do the will of the Father. You lacked saving faith. So it's more than just head knowledge. And friends, this is my story. This is part of why I'm burdened. For most of my life, I grew up in West Texas. West Texas, everyone believes in Jesus. I've yet to meet someone who didn't believe in Jesus. And if you had asked me at 16, 17, 18 years old, do you believe in Jesus? I would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus is the son of God. But I was totally living for the world. There was no semblance of repentance in my life. I was a false convert. I had false faith. 
That's what faith is not. Faith is not just intellectual agreement. It's not just, that's demon faith. It's more than that. So what is it then? That's what faith is not. What is saving faith? Vitally important question, isn't it? We, we do not want to hear those words. I do not want you to hear those words on judgment. They depart from me. I never knew you. We want to make sure we have saving faith, not demon faith. Again, forsaking all, I take him. I love how the Puritan William Ames defined faith. He said, faith is the resting of the heart on God, trusting him with our very lives. And faith has a negative aspect and a, and a positive aspect. Faith involves a renunciation and a reliance. We renounce any trust in ourselves, any trust in our own performance, and we rely fully on the finished work of Christ. We renounce and we rely, or we could say we repent and we rely. I'll say more about that in a moment. Flip over to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians 3, 2. We must renounce any trust in ourself, any confidence in ourself. Needed word for today, maybe more than ever, as self is the new God, maybe it's always been that way. With the splash pad on Friday and a little kid's swim shirt, I'm doing me. The first part of coming to faith in Christ is to renounce that. Deny self. Notice the way the Apostle Paul, if he had anything to trust in, if anyone ever had anything to actually trust in themselves, it was him. And notice his posture, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. He's got a warning here for anyone who would add to Jesus. We're saved by faith in Christ alone. There were some false teachers that had come and said, yeah, Jesus is good, but you need to add. And Paul has some harsh words, as he often does, for anyone who would try to add to Jesus. Because if you try to supplement anything to Jesus, you end up taking away so notice what he says in verse 2, look out. It's a warning. Look out for the dogs. And the dogs were unclean animals in that day. There were no dog spas in first century Philippi. It was a bad terminology here. They're unclean. Look out for the evildoers. They're all about doing things, but actually their works are evil. Not good because they're wanting to add to the gospel. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. One of the things they were saying they needed to do to complete salvation was to be circumcised. And Paul says they're just mutilated in the flesh, which is a term from 1 Kings 19 where these pagans would cut themselves to try to appease their false god. So harsh words, he says, about them. And then he says, verse 3, who are we? We are the circumcision. In other words, we're the true people of God who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And here it is, put no confidence in the flesh. What are the main characteristics of the people of God? We renounce any trust in ourself. The flesh is the fallen self. Verse four, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he just has a list here. Some things that he just inherited by birth, some things that he achieved circumcised on the eighth day, law keeper right from the beginning, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of, the, one of two faithful tribes, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew the language. He was ethnically Hebrew. As to the law of Pharisee, the strictest group of Jews. As to zeal, he was so zealous he persecuted the church because he saw it as an enemy of God. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Of course, Paul knows and we know that Paul wasn't sinless. But if you looked at the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul, you couldn't point a finger at him. What's his posture toward all that, though? 
he renounces, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This is probably as close as the New Testament gets to saying a cuss word. It was a vulgar term in first century and uh, it mostly meant human excrements. Count all that I had going for the self. I was at the top of my class. It's rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so we've got to renounce. There it is. That's the first step. We renounce any trust in ourselves. That's the first aspect that's a negative aspect of saving faith. And I love how the church's hymnody, hymnody has got this right. We'll sing in a moment. Could endless striving make me righteous? Could all my works now grant me hope? Oh, hallelujah, the blood of Jesus, my only plea, my only boast. Or nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Or behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. It's a renunciation of trust in ourselves. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. And so there's this renunciation of our performance and a complete reliance on the finished work of Jesus. It's a negative aspect and a positive aspect. So the first question is, have you renounced any trust in yourself? How can we know if we have saving faith? That's the first answer. We don't trust in ourselves. We glory in Christ alone, but more broadly, let want to spend a decent amount of time here asking, how can we know? How can we know if I have demon faith or true faith? Well, history is really important for so many things. And in this area, the answer has really been provided for us in the Protestant reformers. They gave us three areas. I want to spend most of our time expanding on those, but I'd like you to know these. They talked about three aspects of true saving faith. And of course, they used Latin what is true saving faith? Well, it's notitia, which is knowledge, a census, which is agreement, and fiducia, which is trust. Those three aspects. First, yeah, we've got to recognize the gospel's truth claims, knowledge, but we must see their truthfulness. We must agree. It's not just enough to say, yeah, they're there. We've got to agree. But then thirdly, we must personally commit to the Lord Christ. Another way to say it is we must have the facts. We've got to know them. We've got to comprehend them, we've got to agree to them, and we've got to trust in the facts. So I want to reiterate and expand on these. True faith, biblically, is characterized by five aspects. Knowledge, trust, repentance, obedience, and endurance. What is saving faith? First, 
knowledge. There is a head knowledge to it. We've got to understand some things. We, there is some intellectual agreement that needs to be had. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We've got to have conviction. Most basically, Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth this content, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart this content, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, there's the death and resurrection at base. So we must believe Jesus is who he is and did what he did. We must believe the message of God's word. But not just that. We need to believe a little bit more. We got to understand a little bit. And of course, we spend the rest of our Christian life, what, Philippians 3, to know him, growing in our knowledge of him, which is first intellectual and then changes our hearts. But historically, the elements of the Christian faith have been affirmed most basically in what we sang while ago, the Apostles' Creed. And I'm, I'm as Baptist as they come. I tell my friends, capital B Baptist, defined rightly. But we Baptists haven't always done a great job of bringing out the historical creeds like the Apostles' Creed. But again, historically, if you were to ask, what's a Christian? Someone who trusts in Jesus Christ and affirms the Apostles' Creed. Doesn't say everything, but it says the foundational things. Who's a Christian? One who affirms the Apostles' Creed. Let me read it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, lower KC, meaning universal. Rome didn't come for centuries later. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. So the first aspect, we need to know some things. This is a really basic thing to know as people become Christians. In the early church, often they would spend about a year learning these sorts of basic doctrines before they would even baptize somebody, actually. They called them catechumenates. They would spend a year instructing them in the Apostles' Creed, Ten Commandments, those sorts of things, and then after they felt like they had a decent handle, they'd be baptized, usually on Easter. So first, knowledge. Second, trust. Trust. It's not enough just to know about Jesus. You must rely on Jesus. It's the old chair illustration, right? I can pull the chair up here and say, I believe that this chair will hold my weight. That's one thing. It's another thing for me to actually put my weight upon it. We rely fully on him. We trust him. Faith is a confident trust in King Jesus. Here's how Luther defined it. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. Third, repentance. See, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Where there's true faith, there will be repentance. Where there's true repentance, there will be faith. Listen to the first words of King Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There it is. Repent and believe. It's the first words of our Lord. It's the fundamental message in terms of a call of response. We return to our maker, Joel 2. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. 
Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Prophet Isaiah puts it this way. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Notice that there's a forsaking of an old way and a returning to the Lord. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. That's what the word means literally. It's to change your mind about everything, about ourselves. We renounce any trust in ourselves, about Christ and who he is and about the world. We drop our agenda and we take his agenda. We rethink reality in light of the word of God. It's a return to God as the center of life. It's a total surrender to a sovereign Lord. And it's a continuing reorientation of the life toward God, putting him at the center. It's a turning from sin and sinfulness and to God and godliness. Turning from the self to the Lord. Self is evicted from the center, evicted from the throne, and Jesus Christ is enthroned instead. And repentance is more than just feeling sorry, right? Sometimes we will sin and feel bad about it and move on. That's not true repentance. True repentance is is a remorse, but also a resolve to change. That's the difference, right? The Bible speaks of a, a worldly sorrow, worldly grief, and a godly grief. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth for, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So a godly sorrow actually leads to change. And repentance is not just a one-time thing. It's a way of being for the Christian. Calvin said that God assigns to believers a race of repentance that we're called to run our whole lives. You know, one of the first major acts of the Protestant Reformation was Luther nailing his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. It was a, it was a common practice. It was kind of like the, the city bulletin board. And he had lots of issues with Rome where he felt like the Roman Catholic Church had strayed from Scripture. But you know what the very first one he put down was? Let me read it to you. Thesis number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire lives of believers to be one of repentance. And so how do we know? Here's the question. How do we know we have saving faith? We keep repenting. We keep turning from sin. Remember the difference between non-Christians and Christians and not that we don't sin. No, we continue to sin. The difference is we turn from it. We hate it. We seek to fight it. The biblical word there is we put it to death. We mortify it. Faith and repentance are not just the entry point into the Christian life. They're the ongoing pattern of the Christian life. So saving faith will have repentance. Fourth, and really related, obedience. Saving faith leads to obedience. We're saved by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. It goes forth in obedience. It goes 
public in good works. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, the apostle Paul says, the only thing that matters is faith working through love. Flip over to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. So if you're in Philippians, just flip back to the left. Ephesians chapter 2, really good verses to memorize. If you've got kiddos, great passage to memorize in July, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. So crystal clear. For by grace, verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. There it is. So crystal clear. By grace through faith, not works. God's really concerned that no one has any reason to boast. Not by works. Verse 10, for because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You catch that? We're not saved by works, but what are we saved for? Works. Not by, but for. That's so important for us to get. And notice there that even faith, even our believing is a gift of God. He's the one who grants it. It says the same in Philippians 1. It's been granted to you, verse 29, that you should believe. And so if a person says they have faith, they say they're a Christian, and I know you all know people like this. This was me all through high school. They say they're a Christian. They say they have faith, but their lives look no different than your pagan friends, your unbelieving friends. The question is, is their faith legitimate? Because faith over time leads to obedience. True saving faith will change a person. They will stop living like the world. They will fight sin. I wonder in your own life, do you see change? Is your faith in Jesus Christ leading you to be transformed? Are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Now, you've got to be careful here because watching your own sanctification can be like watching corn grow. I often say we don't need to look like last week or even last month, or even last year, but three years ago, can you see how your faith is changing you? Can you see how you're becoming a more mature Christian? Can you see how you're becoming more conformed to Jesus Christ? Again, Calvin says it like this. It's not our doctrine that the faith which justifies is alone. We maintain that it, faith, is invariably accompanied by good works. So we're saved by faith alone, but that faith will never be alone. It will change us. Again, Luther describes faith this way. What is faith? Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it's impossible for it not to do good works incessantly all the time. It doesn't ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it's already done them. It's always at the doing them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. He gropes and looks about after faith and good works and knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Though he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. Saving faith leads to obedience. You know, Paul, I mentioned that the way we start things and the way we close things is really important. In uh, the book of Romans, Paul starts the letter 
And he concludes the letter in the same way. You know, Romans, Romans, such an important book. We should go through it sometime soon. Just give you a little bit under the, in the kitchen plan. My plan was to do Romans earlier on in my ministry. That way I can tackle it again at the end in about 20 years. I hope many of you are with me when that happens. Romans 1, though, what does he start? He says that his aim is, in verse 5, Romans 1, 5, to bring about the obedience of faith. The idea is that the obedience that flows from faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. What is the Apostle Paul's goal in writing the most important letter ever written? To bring about obedience. Obedience, though, that flows from faith, the obedience of faith. Then he hits it again, he starts to conclude, and then he doesn't quite, but in chapter 15, he says much the same. Chapter 15, verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Here it is, what's his goal? To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And then at the very end of the letter, chapter 16, verse 26, he speaks of this mystery that's now been made known, what? To all nations, everyone, according to the command of the eternal God, what is it? To bring about the obedience of faith. And so faith leads to obedience. That's the goal of the Christian life, really. Trust in Christ that leads to obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Savior and Lord. And this order is so important for us to get. Faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit of living faith. Fifth, the fifth characteristic of true faith is that it endures. True faith will last. We all know of people, it's, it's like the new hip thing to do now to deconstruct Christian faith. But even before it was the hip thing to do, we all knew of people that at one time were passionate about the Lord and now basically want nothing to do with them. What's going on there? They lose their salvation? Well, no, actually, the Bible is quite clear that that can't happen. But what happened? It showed that they never had true faith to begin with. They didn't have saving faith. True faith keeps following. Saving faith endures. It continues to pursue the Lord in relationship through his word and prayer. It remains plugged into a local church. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Speaking of those who have went apostate, those who have departed, they went out from us, the local church, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. There it is. They would have endured. They would have kept believing. They would have kept serving. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. How do we know when someone has true faith? How do we know when someone's truly of us? They remain, they endure. I said a few weeks ago, faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. True faith is characterized by knowledge, trust, repentance, obedience, and endurance. And so this morning, do you have faith? Do you have saving faith? Are you confident that your faith is real? Are you confident that the Lord will say, I do know you on that day? Is your faith characterized by these elements? Always imperfectly, always. But are you continually forsaking all that you might take him? 
If not, how do you get it? Well, you renounce any trust in yourself. That's the first step. And you rely fully on his finished work. You take Christ. You forsake all and you take Christ. If you have questions, it's one of our favorite things. It's our favorite thing to talk about is leadership. As we close, I want to mention just some ways that we get hung up on faith. In some ways, what we've talked about so far is our part of saving faith. Things we must know and do and be active in. I want to talk a little bit about God's part in saving faith. A few ways we get hung up. First, we get hung up and then we think that it's, that it's faith, period, that matters. But actually, and listen, everyone's up on faith. No one wants to downplay faith. But it's not mere faith. It's not vague faith. It's not faith in faith that actually saves. It's faith in Christ. So I encourage you to not even talk about faith. Talk about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith must have an object. We must know about Christ. We must trust in Christ. We must obey Christ. We must keep following Christ. Faith by itself is useless. Faith in Christ is of more value than all the world's treasures. The second way we get hung up is we put works on the wrong side of the salvation equation. I've already talked about this, but I think it's so important because we forget almost daily. And we tend to think that we put works on this side so that I must, I must work faith and work in order to gain God's love and acceptance and favor. That's the wrong side of the equation. We're saved, we're justified by faith and faith alone. And then as a result of our salvation, we go to work and we work on fighting sin and being transformed. See the difference? Vitally important. Every other religion says, you obey, you do your part, you perform, God will love you. Gospel Christianity says, faith and faith alone, you get God's favor. And therefore, based upon that favor, we seek to please him in all our lives. Works are necessary for salvation. Bible's so clear about that. Not as the basis for our salvation, but as evidence that we've truly been saved. Hugely important distinction. Not as the ground basis cause, but as evidence that our faith is true. Ephesians 2.8, saved by works, not by works, but for works. Third error is that we tend to focus too much on ourselves. And we spend too much time focusing on the strength of our faith rather than the object of our faith. Well, what does that mean? Well, we worry. You know, I just don't know. Do I have enough faith? I don't know if I have enough faith. Let me just help you. You don't. But the weakest faith connects you to the strongest Savior. I remember hearing a, an analogy by D.A. Carson some years ago. He was a professor of New Testament at Trinity in Chicago, and he was talking about, he was putting us back in the time of the Passover. So there's two men, and Passover's coming. The people of God have been warned. Judgment for the firstborn is coming. Your firstborn will die unless you put blood on the doorpost. And you had two men. They were neighbors. I call them Bob and Larry, remarkably non-Hebrew names. And Bob is confident, does it, and he just continues doing, doing yard work. Put the blood up, he's good, and think about it again. He's going to sleep well that night. Larry, on the other hand, is just racked with anxiety. He loves his firstborn. He can't fathom the thought of it. And so he is a nervous wreck and he goes and talks to his neighbor and tonight's the night, have you heard? And Bob said, yeah, there, there's the blood. Not worried at all. Larry's just racked. I, I just can't get over. And Bob said, well, didn't you just, God said, put the blood up. You got the blood? Okay, you got the blood. We're good. And the next morning, whose firstborn was saved? 
Bob and Larry's. Why? Because it's not a certain level of psychological certainty that saves. It's the strength of the blood. It's the strength of the object of our faith. And so the weakest faith connects us to the strongest savior. Focus on the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. Fourth, we tend to think that faith is our doing. We tend to think that faith is a work. We already saw it though, faith is a gift of God. He keeps us. If you're a guest, we're big on catechisms here. I love the Heidelberg Catechism, 1570s. Here's the question, what is true faith? Here's the answer. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it's a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. Faith is a gift of God. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the gospel. And the Father keeps us. As we're going to sing in a moment, the Father holds us. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Jude 24 says he's able to keep us. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus prayed in John 17, I've kept them in your name which you've given to me. I have guarded them, not one of them has been lost. Philippians chapter one, verse six. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He started it, he's gonna finish it. Psalm 66, he keeps our souls. He doesn't let our foot slip. Psalm 121, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. 1 Peter 1.5, God's power is holding us. We are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And so, friends, we must keep believing, we must keep repenting, we must hold fast, but we will only do so because he holds us fast. Let's pray.